So welcome along to the Sermon Expanded for the Sunday the 18th of February. Again, we've been going through these series in the book of Luke. We've been extending that a little bit and giving a bit of a background as to how I came up with the sermon, some of the thoughts behind it, some of the ideas in the books that you read. The kind of art of writing a sermon is about gathering information. It's about piecing it all together. It's about putting it in context and then applying that to people uh, and challenging them out of it and asking them to think for themselves about how it works into their lives and about what happens in their lives. There was a... I worked in construction for a number of years before I went into ministry. Uh, I moved back home and worked for a building contractor. As one of the foremen arrived on a construction site one day, he noticed a man lying in the ground with his eyes closed, went up to him and gave him a bit of a kick and said, wake up, you, got, you can't be around here, you can't be lying around a building site, you, you have to go. And the man kind of moved, he looked like he was asleep, but he, he kind of moaned and off the foreman went, disappeared again, and later on at lunchtime he came out and noticed the man still lying in the ground, wasn't really moving, looked like he was asleep, went up, gave him a kick, and um, the man just kind of moaned, and again the foreman was like, yeah, you can't be around here, you, you've got to go. man moaned and nothing happened, so he disappeared off again and just at home time just while everyone was heading out the foreman went out and again noticed this man lying on the ground but this time he was sitting up a bit he looked a bit kind of brighter and the foreman said to him listen you, you have to go I'm going to have to ring the police we're closing up now it's time to go you can't be lying here all night and so picks up the phone to phone the police and goes to him where, where, where have you come from and the man looks at him and goes to the roof I worked in construction for a number of years Health and safety was a massive thing. You wouldn't have got away with that. There would have been all kinds of risk assessment. There would have been all kinds of things to look at. There would have been all kinds of things that we had to fill in. Uh, and certainly it, it wasn't a bad thing. The safety of you in your workplace is a hugely important thing. The safety of you getting home each day is a hugely important thing. It's not something to be enlightened. The idea of health and safety is there for the reason to keep us safe at work to keep us healthy and safe in our workplace but in sometimes in the order of health and safety and the other regulations that are put in place we see exactly what happened to the pharisees in this story and i'll, I'll read the story to you in a second it became about being governed and directed by the letter of the law rather than the heart or the spirit of the law of course in health and safety it's about safety in the workplace it's about getting us home safe but suddenly all those rules all those regulations can become more of that it can become ensuring that we stick to the rules rather than ensuring people keep safe in whatever they do. We see that even in the idea of philosophy. When I was studying, uh, I took a couple of philosophy modules and there was an interesting philosophical debate and you can think this through for yourselves as to what you would do. But you're standing at a junction, at a set of train tracks with two kind of one line coming towards you and you're at that mark where you pull a a lever to direct the, the way the train goes, whether to the left track or the right track. It's a runaway train, so there's no driver and it can't be stopped. And if it goes down the left track, if you send it down that track, there is one person who's tied to that track and that one person will die. On the other track, there are five people tied to the track. And so what do you do? It's not a case of, well, you can't do anything. It has to be one of those ones you have to choose. But what do you do? You know it's not right to take a life, but then you have to balance up what would the laws tell me? What would these things tell me about what I should do in this scenario? What is the, the spirit of the law in regards to that? And what effectively would you do in that situation? 
and we see that a lot in what the the Pharisees do. It's about keeping this law that they have. They ha- they are the people, the chosen people of God. They are the Israelites, and so for them, that has to be protected. There were all these rules and regulations. Of course, started out with the Ten Commandments, and if we read through Leviticus and Numbers and all those, we see all these ideas of the rules and regulations that God sets in place, that He directs these people to do. But then we also have multiple hundreds if not thousands of laws that the Pharisees then put in place so that you didn't break even any of those rules. It was a way of protecting the main rules. It was like a fence. So to save you from going beyond where you could even possibly break those laws, you actually made more rules and regulations to make sure you didn't break the laws or rules that would enable you to break the laws, the main laws and rules. So it was like a hierarchy of rules set in place to enable you to stay away, to keep safe, to keep clean, to keep as pure as possible. For the Jewish people, it was all about national purity. And so national purity was about personal purity and individual purity and ensuring that you kept all these rules and regulations. So with that in mind, we come to Luke chapter 14, verses 1 to 11, at which we read, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy, a disease. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told then a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honour, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honour, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honoured in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Great theologian, man from our church, the great theologian Tom Clark described it in this way as doing the right thing rather than doing things right. And that's what it is, because we can be so intent on doing things right that we forget about what the right thing to do is. How often do we become fixated on doing right things rather than doing the right thing? And in this story, we see that in the Pharisees, they were so intent on their laws and regulations, which were all about what you couldn't do on a Sabbath, what you were allowed to do on a Sabbath, which wasn't very much, and about who you could heal and all these rules and regulations, that they were doing things right rather than doing the right thing. And Jesus describes that in this parable, uh, not in the parable, just before the parable in verses 1 to 6 where we can see that you're not supposed to do anything on the Sabbath. You said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Of course it wasn't. That's one of the things they have against Jesus. And I think seven times in the Gospels, not Luke, but in the, in the whole Gospels, there are seven incidents in which Jesus heals on a Sabbath. And each time he gets into bother, his disciples get into bother, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the lawyers all come against him because it's not something you're supposed to do. But then Jesus says, well, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath will not immediately pull him out? That was okay to do. 
There was a law there that said you were allowed to do that on the Sabbath. So that's why Jesus is drawing the comparison, asking them these questions, because there were these rules, there were these regulations, the, the do's and don'ts of what you were allowed to do on the Sabbath. But Jesus, in his usual way, because he knows more of the law, because he understands what it is for, kind of frames this in a strange way. Morris puts it this way. Jesus asked whether it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath. It was an awkward question to answer. According to the rabbinic regulations, it certainly was not lawful. Healing could take place on the Sabbath only when there was danger to life. In this case, the man would probably not have died if the case had been stood over until sundown because of the illness, the dropsy that he had. To agree to healing under these circumstances would lead to an accusation that they were soft on law enforcement. And so even within the Pharisees and the teachers and the experts of the law at this time, there was this idea where you could be, well, extreme, you could be hard, you could be conservative in regards to the law. And then there was a, others that maybe were soft or more liberal. You could bend certain rules and regulations. But on the other hand, lawful might mean contained in the law of Moses. And so it was all about the people who were around them, the people who were in this group. There is nothing in scripture to forbid such healing. It was the rabbinic interpretation of scripture that was the source of the rule. Again, the Pharisees protecting the protection of the law. To insist publicly in this interpretation might lead to a charge of indifference and human suffering. And so they were silent. They couldn't really answer fully. It was one of those ones that would have to go into a great deal of detail and probably would cause a lot of debate. But their silence before the miracle made it more difficult for them to complain afterwards. And so Jesus heals the man and dismisses him and sends him off. Jesus is always at this point where he's ahead of the game. He's understanding more of what's going on. And he always knows how to, to trap them in their own game of this. If they said it wasn't allowed, then Jesus would be able to turn that on them and make them think of why and how and why it wasn't. Um, as we go on, we can often feel like the Pharisees or less than we can look down on them we can uh, we can say that oh well you know we wouldn't be like that it's easy for us to point the finger at them and Barclay says in his commentary on this that one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that it's not just about them it's not just about what they did or didn't do the things which can disturb 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 congregations the things which can disturb us in these days are seldom big things but often trite the things which divide man from man and woman from woman, which destroy lifelong friendships, are often little things with no which no sensible person in their saner moment would allow any importance. The little things can bulk so largely that they can fill the whole horizon of the church. And so we need to be careful in the same way that our own laws, our own regulations, the things we would say Jesus would or wouldn't do actually are the right things. That we're not just trying, trying to do right things even to ourselves even to the people around us, to the people who might interpret or look at things in the same way as we do. It's all about ensuring that we're doing the right thing rather than simply doing things right. Tim Chester, in a book called A Meal with Jesus, which we've I've been studying uh, in my own time, says this about the incident here. Um, he says, This meal reveals the heart of its participants. There's no restoration on the Sabbath. There's no healing. There's only jockeying for position. The poor are excluded. The righteous think their meals maintain the purity of Israel. But Jesus actually says they're the threat to the people of God and the purity of Israel. It's an ugly vision and not inviting at all. 
Meals can be a visual representation of our hearts. If our hearts are concerned for position, honour, status or approval, then that will be reflected in how we eat and who we eat with. He then goes on to talk about the book of Luke. Uh, and we've seen this. He, he talks about, well, he asked the question, what was Theophilus taught and how does Luke's account bring certainty? And this is going back right to the start of the book. If Theophilus had been taught just the story of the life of Jesus, then it's difficult to see how Luke's account mad, might add certainty. He suggests that Theophilus has been taught that a day is coming when the first shall be last and the last shall be first. It's the great reversal. He's been taught that God has an eternal banquet to which sinners are invited, but from which the self-righteous and the self-important are excluded. And that's important to understand as we continue on to the next part of this book, next part of this passage, where Jesus tells the parable of the wedding feast, where someone is invited if you take a place at high honour, then if someone else is invited, you would be lowered, you would be told to move and with shame take the lowest place. But to go and sit in the lowest place, that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, then you will be honoured in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. If we think of this in terms of the feast, the great feast of the kingdom of God, the great feast and banquet, the messianic banquet of God, then we understand that the Pharisees who thought they were the chosen people of God, who thought that they should have the, the most highest positions of honour, that they should have the places next to the host because they were chosen and they kept their purity and they kept all these things, then Jesus is essentially you who think you have all this you will be given the lowest place. You might not be excluded, you might not be kept out, but you will be given the lowest place. And those who have the great reversal in them, those who have been oppressed, those who have been given nothing, they will be the ones who are honoured at the great banquet. They will be the ones who are brought up, as Chester says, the, the poor, the ones who don't know, the ones who haven't been given anything, the marginalised, the poor, the ones who who don't have position, honour, status or approval, the ones who we might exclude, they will have their place at the great banquet of God. He wants us to see the great twist, the great upside down nature of the kingdom of God and of the church, that it's not often about being first but being last, it's not about proving a point but being humble enough to let it go. And that goes back to Bartley's this idea that the thing that disturbs congregations, the thing that disturbs relationships within the kingdom of God, the thing which divides man from man and woman from woman destroys lifelong friendships. They're not the big things often. They're the little things. And it's not about one person being right and the other person being wrong. It's not about both pointing the finger. It's about the great upside down nature of the kingdom of God and the church that often is about not being first but being last. It's not about proving a point but being humble enough to let that go, humble enough even to apologise, humble enough to forgive as we have been forgiven. This is the certainty of what Theophilus has been already taught, that it's not about doing things right, the things the Pharisees were teaching, but doing the right thing. The reason he had to be certain was that this was a whole new upside down way of life, which isn't about being first but last, isn't about making yourself superior, no matter how great that might make you feel, not about being the high seat at the table, but about self-sacrifice, humility and exaltation in the kingdom of God and in the eyes of God. That can be difficult. Because often in our churches, often in our denominations, often in life, 
we find ourselves at the, I, I want to say peril, but at the pressure under the weight influence of others who sit around us, who we mix with, maybe even the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, maybe even people we know who influence us in certain ways and it's very difficult to stand out. It's very difficult to take another way. It's very difficult not even just to go with what we think in culture should be or what we reflect upon that. But it's about doing the right thing. It's not even about doing things right by other people. It's about doing the right thing, which can be hard and can be difficult, which can stretch us, which can challenge us. But that also is the nature of the kingdom of God. It's not something that is easy and in next week's we're looking where Jesus talks about the cost of discipleship. And so it's not something that is easy for many of us. It's not something that can be a breeze. It's something about the nature of this kingdom of God and about being humble enough to lower ourselves, to sacrifice, to give. Because that truly is where the kingdom of God shines and flourishes and we see it. So hopefully that maybe has opened up a little bit of this passage. Maybe it, it shows you why the two connect. Maybe for you it was hard to understand why he would go from one thing on to the next. Maybe you just heard a little bit more about the Pharisees and what they stood for and why Jesus constantly challenges them. Uh, but we hope you find it inspiring. We hope you find it encouraging. We hope you have found it helpful in your quest to do the right thing rather than simply doing things right as we tick the boxes often in life of, of doing what we should or what we are expected to, or what other people think we might should be, have to do. Uh, and so hopefully you find that uh, today. And so may you, may you, my brothers and sisters, this morning, tonight, whenever you listen to this on the bus, you're walking home, as you're sitting on your sofa, wherever that is, may you see with new eyes the nature of this kingdom and find your seat at the table to be exalted by God. It's not an artificial fake humility where we think oh well if we humble ourselves we'll be exalted and we seek that exaltation it's true humility which will see us exalted in the kingdom of god grace and peace